For those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet this morning, we do welcome you. Turn with me along with our congregation to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> you're joining us for the first time or your guest here for the first time this morning, just a reminder that uh, we preach and teach expositionally at Flat Creek, which means we generally select a book, prayerfully select a book, and then uh, teach that book or preach through that book for, uh, from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. And we've done that consistently now for over 25 years. Uh, most of our Sunday school classes teach that way as well, and on Sunday evening we do. So, uh, uh, again, it forces us into passages of Scripture that we would choose to ignore because either we don't understand them or we don't like them or whatever it is. We, we are human, and we, we have each of us have perhaps favorite verses that we like, and we promote those, and, and while that is... Uh, uh, a way to approach scripture it's not the best way and we're in one of those passages this morning uh, we're going to read beginning in verse 13 and read through the end of the chapter and the end of the chapter is uh, let's just say there are at least four interpretations of the end of the chapter and so we, when we get there we won't be there this morning but we will do our best to to uh, exegete the Word of God according to context. If you don't have a Bible, we want you to follow along. There are pew Bibles. Uh, this passage is on page 1016, so follow along with us if you would. Beginning in verse 13, Peter writes, and I'm reading from the New King James, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteous, uh, righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they uh, defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ might be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There's also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Let's go to the Lord and his throne of grace in prayer once again. Father, bless, I pray, as you always have your word. It is the only agency in this life that you have promised to exalt. Through the word, we learn about Jesus. So teach us this morning where we are ignorant about your son. We pray, Father, that you would fill us with your spirit, 
We pray that we would have a right fear and a ready faith. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. So we completed uh, verses 8 through 12. In fact, this goes back all the way to verse uh, 13 of chapter 2. This was uh, a long passage that Peter wrote to the pilgrims that are dispersed about Asia Minor during his writing. He wrote this in about uh, 60 A.D. So as he's writing this, he's talking in in the passage, uh, verse 13 of chapter 2 through verse uh, 12 of chapter uh, 3. He's talking about submission. He is now going back to suffering, and this is the overall theme of the book of 1 Peter, suffering. And we'll broach that subject uh, again this morning. Now, we completed uh, holding to authority, which is that passage that we just mentioned from verse 13 of chapter 2. Now we are looking at herding together for the Lord Jesus Christ, and specifically suffering for righteousness' sake. Righteous people will suffer. And that's a given. It's not an option. It's coming our way if we know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. First slide, if you would, Brother Jeff. So we talked, uh, just mentioned chapter 2 and verse 13 through the end of uh, verse 12 of chapter 3. Explains Christian submission. And now we are looking at uh, verse 13 of chapter 3. It actually goes through verse 19 of chapter 4. We're going to, to once again examine Christian suffering because of Christ's imputed righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own. Self-righteousness is not righteousness. We have no righteousness. We're speaking, Peter's speaking of the righteousness of uh, God, of course. The righteousness we have is an imputed, in fact, and that means it basically has been given to us, for those of us that know Jesus as Savior, because it is who Jesus is. He is righteous, among many other attributes. So the whole text here that we see, uh, that we read in your hearing this morning, is about hope. In fact, that difficult portion of Scripture that picks up in verse 19 of chapter 3 is a passage about hope, and we will see that as we move into it. And so when we hope, and he talks about here the, the hope of a ready faith, hope is the opportunity to place our faith in a hallowed, in a holy and sanctified Christ Jesus as Lord. So the focus in this text and in our lives as believers is hallowing a holy God and honoring Christ as Lord, sovereign over all, saved, unsaved, no stray molecules in this universe. So I want to read uh, or juxtapose the the reading from a strategy workshop from an employer. All of us, uh, most of us probably have uh, had this continuing education um, 
the classes that, that, are in, that employers have trying to better their employees. Not necessarily a bad thing, don't misunderstand me, but this was one that I ran across. The reading is called My Declaration of Self-Esteem by Virginia Satir. And she wrote this, I am me. In all the world, there is no one exactly like me. Everything that comes out of me is authentically mine because I alone choose it. I own me. And therefore, I can engineer me. I am me, again stated, and I am okay. Well, it's interesting because Peter confronted similar attitudes in his world. This is not unique to our time. The, as in all time, there is a distinction between Christianity and idolatry, not only here in America but worldwide. And this is a statement of, of idolatry. Christianity is Christ-exalting. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Savior, you're called to exalt Christ, not yourself. In fact, I want to remind you, and some of you will talk about employees, from time to time, most employers will have employee reviews and they will you will generally I remember when I was employed you you had to set so many goals for the year and you were uh, judged you were reviewed based on reaching those particular goals now if you're like most individuals there's something that comes up almost every day that delays you from accomplishing those goals and as in most cases, your goals are not other people's goals. So when you're trying to complete your goals, you may interfere with other people not reaching their goals. In fact, Wall Street Journal a number of years ago said that the employee reviews should be canned. We should be judged on what is accomplished on the day-to-day -day activity and not an overall annual activity which, having been in that position for, for years and, and doing employee reviews, I agree with. What you end up doing is promoting self. Now, through education or through craft, you maintain and you acquire certain skill sets that are used in the workplace, and that's a good thing. But for the believer, it's one that Again, using the word juxtapose or against one another, that's what it means. We come to a point to where we are in a system that has shameless self-promotion. This is not Christian life. This might be the modern life, but it's not Christian life. So as I said, Peter had confronted this and all you <laughs> All you need to do is read a little history from the Greeks and the Romans, and you find that most of what we have today, most of the structure today in the Western world is either uh, Greek in or origin or Roman 
or Latin or something that proceeds out of Western Europe. All it takes is a little reading. Now, Peter is calling the believers of his day and ours to focus on the hope that is within us. Look again at verse 15. This is a, a, a verse that is often quoted and we, we lift it out of context and we say this is the uh, apologetic or where we get the word uh, apologetics from, and it is. But notice what drives us. Sanctify, set apart the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks a reason for the hope. That lies within you. So we won't venture into verse 15 this morning, but we will begin next Sunday morning and we'll do our best to rightly divide the Word of God when we come to that. The, the passage is on hope. Now, it is an evangelistic passage, but the focus is on hope, and the focus is on the hope that we have in hallowing Jesus Christ. Self-exaltation is idolatry. And all of us are guilty of it. And idolatry is always a fool's errand, weighing sinners down. And it weighs us down with the demands of our flesh. And this happens in just about everything. The entire world's permeated with sin. And as a believer, you need to understand that. This is uh, the church itself. Gordon was teaching this morning. The church is a hospital for sinners, but as we closed out last Sunday's message, I reminded you that we need to lift ourselves up out of this uh, moralistic mediocrity that we have because the, the marvelous opportunity we have is to place our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think Jesus wants you to be mediocre? Do you think Jesus was mediocre? Well, the scriptures are very clear he was not. So, self-idolatry, idolatry. I am me. I'm unique in all the world. Now, some of that is true. But the devil is very good at taking half-truths and making them whole-truths. In fact, we talk about angels here in the latter part of of chapter 3. So remember, the demands of our flesh are such that they will always want to exalt me, me, me. And that applies for everyone here. It applies to everyone that's listening. It implies to the entire world today. It, imply, it, was, it applied in Peter's day. So next slide, if you would. She goes on to write, I alone choose everything that comes out of me. And I can invent new things within me. Therefore, I own me and I engineer me. But there's a rub here. Being human, we are not the captains of our own souls. If you do claim that for yourself, what an excruciating weight that it places on you. 
And here are just some of the ramifications of that weight. I must clear my own conscience. I must forgive my own sin. I must find my own meaning. I must uphold my own cause. I must carry my own burdens. I must protect my own life. Overcome my own fears. Heal my own wounds. Secure my own future. And comfort myself in my own death. Now try doing that. In fact, try doing any of these but essential, all the, uh, specifically the last one. So, <clears throat> the only redemption offered in, sex, in, in self-exaltation is a pitiful, is the pitiful ceremony of looking at ourselves in a dimming mirror. And I say that dimming because now at my age, looking at the mirror is quite a bit more dim than it was when I was younger because my eyes are dim. I don't, I look similar to what I did 50 years ago, but I don't look the same. And so we look into a dim mirror and we repeat, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. But Peter is not writing to make people okay. He is writing to lift people up in hope because of our Savior. We didn't get, the Lord Jesus did not save us to make us okay. The Lord saved us to make us like him. And Jesus is not just okay. It's a hard way to die because we're not okay. And almost every human being, when confronted with the power of the word of God, eventually has to has to battle with their conscience as to whether or not they are indeed sinners or whether they are self-sufficient. The Bible teaches that we are lost and we are searching for any meaning. We're searching for hope in a life of suffering. A life of suffering. A hundred ninety-one times in English translations, a form of the word suffering is found. Now, it's interesting because in this first epistle of Peter, he highlights the prevalence, the prevalence rather, of suffering more than any other New Testament book. It is. Sometimes people say, well, James is the book of is the New Testament book of Job. Sometimes. But first Peter is an example of the sufferings of Job and the sufferings of Peter and the sufferings of people that know the Lord Jesus as Savior. And we have to grasp with that. We we have to grapple with that. Peter has written more and will write more in this epistle than any other New Testament book. He has suffered. 
He has been jailed. He has been beaten. He is now imprisoned. And he and his wife are awaiting death, and they will be crucified. And yet, he says, there's hope. There's hope. Is there hope with you this morning? The hope is in a hallowed God, in the hallowing of Jesus Christ. Next slide. Now, I'm not going to look at all of these this morning. We've covered a number of them, but it's interesting as I was putting the notes together again for, about suffering that I ran across this in one of my commentaries. H.A. Uh, Ironside, Harry Ironside, was a man that uh, was born in the last portion of the 19th century and passed away in the uh, early portion of the uh, 20th century. He was a Canadian by birth. It is interesting that uh, this young man was raised in a, uh, a home that, where his mom and dad were, um, were part of the Plymouth Brethren movement, which is very similar to the Quakers. And so he was taught at a very young age to, uh, to improve his morality. So it was a movement of works, salvation by works. And uh, Ironsides was very, very diligent to ensure that his life was as moral as he could make it, self-sufficient as he could make it. In fact, at the age of 13, he started and taught a children's Sunday school class. By the time he was 15, he was preaching at least three or four times uh, a week. But he found, as he was doing this, being exposed to the Word of God, that he was lost. And the Lord Jesus, as he does all of us, miraculously saved him. He went off to school, and then for a number of years, he pastored Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, outside of Chicago, and helped to start Wheaton uh, College outside of Chicago for about 18 years. And in writing his commentary on uh, 1 Peter, he has this list of sufferings, the times that sufferings are mentioned in this epistle. First, uh, first ch uh, chapter here, suffering is faith's trial. Peter's going to talk about it again here in chapter 3. Christ predicted suffering. Christ uh, was predicted in the Old Testament to suffer. We will see a portion of that here in the latter part of chapter 3. And he did indeed suffer, perhaps as no man has ever suffered. In chapter 2, suffering for conscience' sake. Also, the Christ's suffering is our example, beautiful doxology, in the latter part of chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. We are now looking at suffering for righteousness' sake. In fact, that's what it says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. In verse 18, Christ suffered for our sins. It specifically says that and then goes into some detail as to what occurred in the suffering. In chapter 4, 
Verse 1, suffering to cease from sin. Suffering is not only given to us to make us like Christ, it's also given to us to help us to understand the severity of our sin. Verse 13, Christians are partakers of of our Lord's suffering. And then in verse 16 of chapter 4, it talks about unashamed suffering. And then he closes out in verse 10 of chapter 5, the fact that uh, he talks about not uh, the phrase that Ironside uses is temporary suffering, but what Peter is talking about here is if, if you suffer for a little while, obviously none of us when we are suffering think it's for a little while, but that's what Peter thought and that's what Peter taught. So this is the, the main theme as Peter is writing to individuals that are challenged in the Roman Empire. Next slide. The latter part of, uh, or excuse me, verse 12 of of chapter 3, which we covered last week. Let's read that. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So this is a quote from Psalm 34 uh, and verse 16. And we looked at uh, some of those verses last Sunday, and we talked about David and his uh, suffering there in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. Now, Peter quotes this, and he says, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, the face of the Lord in the Old Testament is the testimony of God. When we are given IDs, whether it be driver's license, passports, whatever, they generally take a photo ID. That is my testimony. As ugly as it may be, that's my testimony. The Lord has a testimony. Now, God is spirit. So the manifestation of of God in the flesh is Jesus Christ. The face, the testimony of the Lord, the witness of the Lord, the photo, if you please, and that's a weak illustration, but the photo of the Lord is against those who do evil. In verses 13 and 14, he comes back around and starts talking about suffering again. So these two themes, in verse 12 he talks about evil, and now he's talking again about suffering. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, these two themes sometimes pose a serious problem to many unbelievers. And really, there are times when they pose problems to professing believers. How do we address the evil that is in the world, and how do we address the suffering that all of us endure? Now, I mentioned to you last week, unsaved people suffer. In many ways that are different than Christians. Christians suffer in many ways that are similar to unsaved people with the addition of suffering for Christ. So have you suffered for Christ? That's the theme that Peter is focusing on. And the question about evil and suffering often is posed in this manner. Why does a supposed good God allow or permit evil and subsequent suffering? 
Now, maybe you've never asked that question, but I have numbers of times. And you have too. Now, there's a man by the name of J.L. Mackey who's a philosopher, and sometimes you have to be, <laughs> you have to, um, there's another word for a philosopher, and that's baloney. But uh, J.L. Mackey wrote this in, in, in a book entitled The Miracle of Theism, which is uh, against God. It's not about God, it's against theology. And he wrote in this book, if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil, because, but because there is much unjustifiable pointless evil in the world, the traditional and powerful God could not exist. Some other God or no God may exist, but not the traditional God. So he struggles with the Bible's portrayal of God. <laughs> Is that unusual? No. It's not on you. Now, there was an Anglican priest that lived back in the 1700s by the name of William Law. And he wrote this. You can have no greater sign of a confirmed pride than when you think you are humble enough. That speaks to J.L. Mackey. Speaks to me. Speaks to us. Now here's the thing. Let's put our thinking caps on for a moment. Just because evil seems to be pointless. In fact, how would we know there was evil if there was no good? We wouldn't. Just because evil seems to be pointless, it does not follow that it is pointless. Because you may not imagine, a reason does not mean that a good God does not exist. And he may allow something to happen that escapes your thinking. Have you thought of everything? You ever hear, hear somebody ask you that? Have you thought of everything? You know what the answer to that is? Every time? No. I am incapable of thinking of everything. No, I have not thought of everything. Mackey hasn't either. Billions of others have not thought of everything. And just because you can't imagine it does not mean that a good God doesn't exist. What lurks behind such skepticism is the enormous ego, self-exaltation, and faith in one's own cognitive facilities. It is 
a fool's errand, it is sin's illusion. Just because we can't imagine a God that is biblical does not mean that God is God. We have to be driven back to the Word, and the Word will promote sanity in our thinking. Peter says, a ready faith and a reason for the hope. Think it through. It sends illusion. And the devil is a master of illusion. You realize, of course, there's no magic. Magic does not exist. Whether it be David Copperfield or whether it be Houdini or something, there's no magic. It's illusion. And sin is very good at deluding us. Next slide. Now, one of the hidden premises of self-idolatry is the little thought that I know more about, uh, I know more than the next person about all things. This speaks It speaks volumes about humanity. This is essentially what Adam thought. I know more than God, what Satan deceived him to believe, than God knows about his own creation. I know more than the next person about all things, even unseen things. And all we need to do is look at Scripture. Joseph, by the way, Joseph is just one of many in Scripture. We could list a number of them. We could talk about Moses. We could talk about about David. We could talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. Through years of bondage and misery, Joseph's character was refined, and the spoiled brat that he was, and that he was, the spoiled brat that he was, Eventually, his character was refined till he became the prime minister of Egypt and the protector of his people. Now, explain that to me in some other way other than what the Bible says. You meant it to me for evil, but God meant it to me for good. Just because you can't imagine it does not mean it's not real, does not mean it's incapable of happening. C.S. Lewis, in his marvelous little book called The Problem of Pain, he didn't write this, by the way, until he was only married one time, and he waited until his later years to become married, and his wife had cancer two or three times, and it eventually took her life. And he wrote the book entitled The Problem of Pain. And he goes back and he talks about, he was an atheist for a number of years, and then Uh, He wrote this. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. 
Now, in order for it to seem cruel and unjust, there has to be some good. You have to have some way to judge it. And notice what he said. But how I got this idea of just and unjust, what was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? My idea of justice was nothing but a private idea of my own. It did not happen to please my private fancies. So we must be careful here. Peter is going to quote, and we'll see that here in just a moment. We'll bring this to a close. We'll see it here. He's going to quote from Isaiah chapter 8. He's going to talk about conspiracies. Oh, how our minds thrive about conspiracies. I had a man a number of years ago, we were talking about the validity of Scripture, and he said, well, you know, all of the writing of the New Testament was basically a a conspiracy to exalt this person called Jesus of Nazareth in order that they may gain control of Palestine. I said, well, they did, did a good job because almost every one of them were put to death. They really had control. Hmm. It did not happen to please my private fantasies, or fancies, rather. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. So when we suffer, for we are faced with evil from our own depravity, it forces us to, <laughs> to think like Adam. We talked about Adam, do we not? In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve had eaten of the fruit. They'd been deceived. They realized that they were sinners, and the Lord God was walking, called to Adam, where are you, Adam? And, of course, the Lord knew where they were. It was just a, the Lord knew that they had sinned, and that's the reason he asked that question. He, he, before, when the Lord came into the Garden of Eden, he didn't have to ask for Adam. Adam was there. Where are you, Adam? And Adam says, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid. Fear. I was afraid. And I hid myself. God's goodness is placed on trial in the crucible of our sinful minds. And so when it comes to evil and it comes to suffering, what happens to us is that we begin to blame the one that is blameless. So in these verses, 13 through 17, Peter talks about two issues. He talks about fear and faith. He talks about the right fear. He talks about a ready faith. Now in verses 13 to 14, he's talking about the right fear. And here's the thing. Fear is personal to each one of us. We fear different things. There's no man alive that doesn't fear something. And we fear different things. Adam said, I'm afraid. He basically was saying, I fear the Lord. And the fear that he has there was not the reverential respect of the hallowing of God, but rather the fear now that God had told him that he was going to die, and that concerned him. So specific situations or circumstances or people, we fear people. And different cultures, we live in a culture, of course, that 
that uh, breeds different fears. In fact, if you <laughs> watch the media, it's um, one of the great things that they do is they promote fear. Most fears in this in the world that we live in, let's talk about America. Most of these are first world problems. They're not insignificant. They're just first world problems. They don't exist in other parts of the world. Loss of job, economic disadvantages, illnesses, loneliness, death. Now, some of these, of course, carried across lines. But most of the issues that we have are unique to this culture, a wealthy culture, wealthy. America, the West, is a wealthy culture. And this is what wealth produces. It doesn't remove fear. It just produces different types of fear. You know, we sometimes fear safe things. Some of you won't fly for one reason or another. That's completely up to you. But flying, did you realize that in this country it's been 14 years since there was a commercial airline crash that killed people? 14 years. It is still far and away the safest form of travel. But some of you won't fly. Maybe a fear of ice. I don't know. But we do fear safe things. And sometimes we're unafraid of dangerous things like addictive prescription drugs. We have a problem in our country now with that. What are you saying, preacher? I'm saying that there must be the right fear and not just an emotional response to what we read or what we see, what we hear, And Peter is here telling and writing to these folks, make sure that your fear has that hope. Next slide. Peter is, is preparing these churches, these individuals that have been scattered abroad for persecution and, and suffering. And he quotes from Psalm 34, if we live well, life goes well. He talks about that in uh, the preceding verses there. But in verse 14, he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. And he writes, even if you should suffer, because some are not suffering. And I speak to some of you this morning that are not suffering. Maybe you have, but at this present time, you're not. So Peter is preparing, and that's what a good teacher does. That's what a good preacher does. He's preparing you by the word of God, so that the hope of the hallowed Christ will lift your spirits even in these times of suffering. He knows that eventually it's going to come. Peter knew eventually he was going to die. Paul wrote, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he said, Timothy, bring the parchments, bring the books. I want to study the books even more, Old Testament. But he said, Peter, uh, uh, Timothy, rather, I want you to understand that the time of my departure is at hand. I know I'm going to die. That's the hope. He encourages them with this word. You're blessed, he says. If, 
Uh, suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. We talked about that at length last week. When mistreated for Christ's sake, we are blessed and partakers of him. Look at verse 13 of chapter 4. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. We participate in the type of uh, the the type of irreverence that Christ went through, the type of verbal and mental suffering that he endured, and we should rejoice when we get at that. Moses, just before he passed away in Deuteronomy chapter ten, wrote this to the children of Israel: What does the Lord require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Fear the Lord your God and walk in all his ways. Do not fear is one of the most common commands in the Bible. It's found literally hundreds of times. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. And perhaps Peter is remembering when he recalls his fear of drowning in Matthew chapter 14. Peter got out of the boat when he saw Jesus walking on the water. And he came toward Jesus walking on the water. Peter was walking on the water as Jesus walked. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. So old Adam was afraid, old Peter was afraid. Old Ernie would be afraid. And he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Peter was sinking. The Lord caught him, lifted him up. If you're sinking this morning, that's what Jesus does. But also, he chastised Peter. The scripture doesn't say, are you okay? Peter, you're a fisherman. Don't you know how to swim? Jesus is teaching. What a teachable moment, and this is what Jesus said. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? Peter's a big guy. He matures. And he writes what we have in the Scripture contained before us in this passage of Scripture. Now, you can't see this particular phrase, but basically what it says. What, what, what Peter is saying here is, as he quotes from Isaiah 8, we'll look at that. We're going to look at that more in detail next Sunday morning. But notice what he says in verse 14. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Literally, he is saying, do not fear the fear of them. Don't fear their fear. Nor are we to fear what the pagans fear. Now, if you're listening, say amen. I want you to look up here as we bring this to a close. If you're listening, say amen. amen. Governments and societies are not to tell us what to fear.
They cannot decide what is frightening to us. In 2006, Al Gore's documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, was made. In it were dire predictions of global warming that he and scientists asserted would come true by 2020, three years ago. They didn't come true. In the 1970s, prediction was made of another mini ice age. In the 70s, we have pictures at home. You probably do too of, of uh, massive snowstorms in the late 60s and early 70s. Actually, all the way through about the uh, early 80s. Many ice ages coming. It didn't happen. Acid rain was going to destroy many of the oak and pine trees in New England and then depleting the forest there, it would cause great drought. It didn't happen. Ozone was being depleted. And there's actually more ozone today than there was 40 years ago. It isn't depleted. COVID and other diseases would kill many more millions. And indeed it did. But it didn't swell to the almost half a billion to a billion that they assumed that it would. Now, don't misunderstand me. Not that these and other situations were not serious at the time. But our fear is quite often an overreaction. What did Jesus say about fear? Don't fear him that can take your life. Fear him that after your life is gone, after you die, has the power to cast you into hellfire. We fear the wrong things. Some fear is good. That's part of a protective nature that's been placed within us. But we can't fear everything. In fact, he says, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, that's a good thing. Don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. I'm going to stop there this morning. I'll pick up with this next Sunday morning, carry this through verse 15. The man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you've heard me quote from him a number of times. <clears throat> and Bonhoeffer was um, a Lutheran pastor, Lutheran theologian in Germany. He actually came to this country for a number of years and, and studied and preached and taught in uh, a number of seminaries in America. He uh, had family in Germany, in, in Nazi Germany. He had received a, uh, basically a, uh, uh, a release for him 
to become a resident in America, but he chose to go back to Nazi Germany. And he basically told those here in this country that his family was there. He was responsible to educate the German people about the horrors and the suffering, the evil of Nazism. And he did. He went back to Germany. Now, Bonhoeffer did a, a very interesting thing for a believer. He actually conspired with other uh, clergymen and laity and some military individuals in Germany to assassinate Hitler. And the assassination went awry. Hitler survived. And it took about a year or so for the Gestapo to squirrel down and find the individuals that were responsible. But they found them to a man. Bonhoeffer was one of them. They imprisoned Bonhoeffer. In the interim, Bonhoeffer became engaged to a young lady that he had fallen in love with before he left to come to America and wrote a number of uh, very, very moving love letters to her asking her, her and her family to pray for him to be released. Well, it never happened. And he wrote The Cost of Discipleship, which I heartily recommend that you read, from prison. Four days before Germany surrendered, Bonhoeffer was hung. Four days. His last words were basically this. Those who are afraid of men have no fear of God. And those who fear God have no more fear of men. Do you have the right fear this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you prepare us, you warn us, as you do. We thank you for suffering for righteousness' sake. Those of us that are believers that are true to the faith and follow the Lord Jesus, I'm sure it's happened many, many times. It will continue to happen. We live in an age, Lord Jesus, where folks fear men and forgive us of that fear. Help us to develop the right fear and help us to understand that the suffering is for our good. Now, this doesn't seem, Father, to be palatable to any of us. It wasn't for Jesus. But he drank the cup, and we are so glad he did this morning because we have been born again through his taking our sins on him and shedding his blood in order that we might be forgiven. May we rededicate and consecrate ourselves to become disciples of Christ, understanding there is a cost. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. We're going to sing a closing hymn this morning, if the Lord's spoken to you. 
Perhaps you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior. But you have a desire within your soul. That's a good thing. That's the work of the Spirit of God. The Lord is seeking you this morning. So as we sing, we're going to ask that you make your way out of the pew. We can't save you, but with an open Bible, we can take you to a private prayer room, lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That needs to be your desire. You need to recognize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Repent of those sins and call out to Jesus. Receive him today in faith, and you'll be born again. As a child of God, he may be leading you into the fellowship of this church. You know the Lord will save you. Perhaps you need to follow him in believer's baptism. That's the first step of obedience. Just be certain that that is sealed and signed, sealed, and delivered. We ask that you uh, make that uh, uh, choice this morning as well. As believers, these from now through the end of First Peter, he's going to talk about suffering. In Second Peter... He's going to warn us about false teachers. So there's a message here that the Lord wants us to learn and to convey. What number, Brother Vance?